Please take your Bible and let's turn to Exodus chapter 20. This is your first time to be with us at Christ Pres. We're walking through the book of Exodus. That's the way we do it here. And we've come to the Ten Commandments and we're taking time to slow down and look at those commandments. Uh, last week we began with the preface to the Ten Commandments. Uh, and we, we discovered there that God's law always reflects His character which is why the Ten Commandments begins with this preface, which is a a substance of His grace. God's voice reveals His authority. God's name reveals His character. God's act and all His acts reveal everything that He has done to deliver His people from slavery and bondage. One pastor rightly said that the Ten Commandments were for the people of Israel not instructions on how to get out of Egypt, They are rules, laws to teach you to live as free people and to maintain the freedom that God has given you. And so that's the the angle through which we approach the Ten Commandments, recognizing that those who belong to Christ have already been set free from sin. And these are the, the ways in which the Lord instructs us to enjoy the relationship that He has given us through Christ. And so let's read Exodus chapter 20. We'll begin at verse 1 and go through verse 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we ask and pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit, so that you would give ears to your people, so that we might hear the very words that you would say to us. I pray, Father, again, that you would use a sinful, crooked stick to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. I pray that from your word we would understand the heart of our Father in heaven, in whose name we pray. Amen. Besetting sins, we've all got them. You've been saved by the atoning sacrifice of Christ, and, and since you have eyes now to see your sins more clearly, I suspect you have one or two little sins that it's very difficult for you to get your eyes off of. You recognize them acutely. You hate them pretty severely, maybe more deeply than others. I'm talking about the, the sins that you, that you pray against and you wish you could kill. Your pride your temper, your anxious thoughts, the words you say. You'll be grateful to know I have no intention of taking a poll this morning. I have no intention of telling you to list them out loud. Aren't you glad? I'm glad too. Well, here's the point. I suspect that none of you, when you began to think about your besetting sins, came to the conclusion, you know, I think my biggest sin problem is that I worship idols. And yet that's precisely the sin problem that was the besetting sin for the people of Israel. You don't have little idols that are sitting on the shelf in your house. You don't have an idol that's sitting out in a field somewhere. Yet the Bible teaches us that we are at our core prone to worship other gods. 
When you study the Old Testament, you realize this is a sin problem that pervades the family tree. It begins with Adam and Eve. They were not content to be with God. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to be little gods unto themselves and rule and reign over themselves. Then later in Genesis, we meet a man named Terah who is himself an idol worshiper, and he has a son whose name is Abraham, and he follows in his dad's footsteps, and he he worships idols. You follow the family line a little further, and you meet a man named Jacob, who leaves his father-in-law with this precious beloved woman named Rachel, sweet, beautiful Rachel, and she's in a tent. She's stolen her father's idols to take them with her. And then when you study the the plagues, you see that polytheism has also infected the hearts of God's people, this this worship of of many gods. Twelve chapters from now, after the Ten Commandments, we're going to come to a place where there's a golden calf. And you're going to think to yourself, it's so stupid. It's a piece of metal. It's shaped in the form of a calf. The prophets of the Old Testament constantly call out God's people for their worship of idols. And and let's be really clear. It wasn't that God's people were saying, "Ah, we don't want to worship Yahweh. It is that they were saying, we would like to worship Yahweh. And Baal. And Moloch. And Asherah. And Dagon. The besetting sins of God's people in Israel is the failure to worship God alone. With a single-minded devotion that would be characteristic of a heart that says, Lord, I'm really all yours. I would be surprised if anybody in this room routinely refers to themselves as a polytheist. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm one of those people who worships many gods. And yet the first commandment teaches us that if we simply divide our allegiance between God and anything else, it is a failure to love him exclusively. So Exodus 20 verse 3 says, worship and serve God alone. We're going to examine this commandment by looking at three headings. What he means, what we break, and then what we fear. We start with what he means. To us, we call them the Ten Commandments. To the people of Israel, they were the the Ten Words. They're the Ten Brief Statements that, that teach us how to flourish in a relationship of love that God has given to us. That's why these commandments don't go away. They always teach us what it means to live in relationship to God. And you remember, of course, that these people were not saved because of their obedience they were saved despite, of their, despite their disobedience, despite the fact that they had adopted the foreign gods of Egypt. And then, of course, along the way, despite grumbling, despite complaining, despite doubting, despite all their lack of faith. But they are saved by grace, not to remain a people of divided heart, but in order to be transformed And to those who really do fix their eyes only on Yahweh. That's why 
God begins these commands with what we studied last week, the preface which, which says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And the natural conclusion from that statement is, you shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because no other God did anything for you in the past except enslave you. I'm the only one who came near to you and delivered you out of that slavery. That's why we studied the individual plagues that Yahweh brought on Egypt. We took time to recognize that each plague in itself was God's physical attack against the false gods of the Egyptians. God said, I'm going to make a mockery of them and I am going to make a point from them. You worship the Nile River, I made the Nile, I'll turn it to blood. You worship a frog goddess, I made frogs, I'll give you lots of frogs. So many that you're sick. You worship bulls, calves, goats, watch them, they're dead, I rule them. And so the attacks on the pagan deities are really a natural precursor to this first commandment. Not because God has any rivals, but because mankind is foolish enough to exchange the truth about God for a lie. To give a a credence and a value to lesser things which really are by nature not God's at all. God's not saying, you know, there really are lots of other gods out there. I'm just hoping I can be your number one. No. He says, I've made it crystal clear. There is no other God in the entire cosmos. I'm your God and that's it. Besides me, there is no other. The book of Genesis was given to this first generation of the Exodus people. A people who were born and raised in polytheism. Every kind of idolatry. Which is why when you first open the Bible to Genesis chapter 1, it makes the strongest statement possible against the worship of false gods. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. Where was Amon-Ri, the Egyptian god of the sun, when all that happened? Where was Osiris, the Egyptian god of the underworld? Where was Heket, the Egyptian frog goddess? Answer, they didn't exist. They're all figments of your imagination. And you know, of course, that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul encountered the same thing at Corinth. So he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, an idol has no real existence. God, there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods, he puts it in quotes, and many lords, yet we know there's only one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom all things exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things were made and for whom they all exist. All this applies in two important ways. Number one, it tells you to whom you must listen. And number two, it tells you to whom you must look. First, the command, you shall have no other gods before me, tells us to whom you must listen. 
Kevin DeYoung explains it like this, because there is one God who comes to us, has rights over us, gives us a law to obey, we have the subsequent nine commandments so that those serve as an objective moral code. It isn't just true for some people in some places, depending on their circumstances. He says the first commandment is really foundational for all of the other commandments. And that is true because if only one God exists and that God happens to draw near and speak, you must listen to the voice of that God and exclude every other competing voice. Now, surely Satan knows and sees that in a culture like ours, which is deeply saturated in the history of Christianity, that we are far too savvy to practice blatant polytheism. Unless there's a problem in the church that I don't know about, I suspect nobody intends to go out on a mountain and sacrifice their children to Moloch or climb up to the high places and worship Baal or Asherah. But what if the evil one could accomplish the same thing, not by creating many gods, but by teaching you to to shrink your god into the same size as other idols in your life. And then through a veil of cultural Christianity, he, he would cleverly teach you to compartmentalize your whole life. And then what would happen is God's voice would be shrunk and drowned out by all the other voices. One pastor used the illustration of trivial pursuit pie pieces. I think it's useful. Here's my God and church piece over here. That's good. God is most important in my life. But over here's my entertainment piece. And over here's my family piece. And over here is my piece which is labeled success. And over here is my career piece. And over here is my money piece. I have another piece. I don't talk about it very often. It's called secret sins. If Satan can simply get me to shrink God's voice into one little pie piece, then that one little pie piece sits amidst seven other competing voices of different, of equal size. And all of those other voices constantly mumble their agenda at me. And then brilliantly, Satan has drowned out the one voice to whom I was created to listen I didn't even have to start out trying to worship multiple gods. I just started out trying to be my own God instead of listening to the voice of the one true God. It's polytheism. And the clever tray that holds the pie pieces, it's me. I'm the deciding factor on what weight and value I give to each piece. Many of those pie pieces are not bad in themselves. Some of them are very good if they're given a voice that is subservient to God. But when you give them an equal voice to the voice of the Lord, when you give any pie piece the ability to communicate more loudly than the voice of God, what happens is that little pie piece takes over. And it begins to rule over you. 
That's how folks get into their 40s and 50s, and they go, I don't really know how I got here. My whole life is being run by my job. I didn't mean for money to consume me, but it does. Or, all I think about is that stupid secret sin. I've been hiding it for years, and it keeps screaming louder and louder. Or on what at first seemed like a positive thing, your family, you look back and you realize, wait a second, I've spent more money trying to purchase experiences for my family than I have actually invested in the kingdom of heaven. And that family piece says they're the same. It is screaming to you, well, to take care of your family, that's exactly the same as worshiping God. To take him to Disney, that's identical to worshiping the Lord. What God means in this commandment, what God wants for his people, is that he himself is the tray that holds all of the various compartments of your life so that his voice is the one who orders them. And your relationships and your finances and your church involvement and your career To have one true God. To worship and serve him alone is to listen to his voice first and foremost. And to place all of the parts of my life into his hands. To welcome his authority over them. The first commandment was monumental in the ancient world. Oh, Not because there's a God in Israel who desires to be worshipped. That wasn't controversial at all. What made this unique in the ancient world is precisely what makes it unique in your world. And that is that God says, you worship me, you serve me to the exclusion of every other competing voice. Secondly, the command you shall have no other gods before me tells you to whom you must listen, but also to whom you must look. In other words, all your trust, all your submission, all your humility, all your patience, all your expectations for good are rooted in the Lord. That's the reason we use the Heidelberg Catechism this morning. It's used in our confession of faith because it speaks of the direction of our gaze. The direction of where I look for my hopes and my security. And it says, doesn't it, that for the sake of my very salvation, I rightly come to know the only true God, to trust Him alone, to submit to Him with all humility and patience. I expect good from Him only and love and fear and honor Him with all of my heart. How would you even know if you had competing gods? Are there things... Or people? Are there systems that you trust more than you trust God? Is there anything in your life that you expect to receive good from more than you expect to receive good from the Lord? Perhaps the answer is myself. I expect to treat myself better than I expect the Lord to treat me. I expect to receive good from me Because I don't always know exactly how the Lord's going to do it. 
Are you more humble and patient with yourself than you are with the Lord? It's the same sin as first began in the Garden of Eden. I'm not really sure that I even know this God, that I can really trust him. I'm not sure he's looking out for my best interest. I should probably take in my interest into my own hands. Yahweh says, no, I'm, I'm God. I'm the only God. I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. I can surely be trusted. Worship and serve God alone. So this is what he means. And now here's what we break. What do you love the most? What do you desire the most? What do you pursue the most? What do you think about the most? Lots of pastors have said this. That's the thing that is your God. The first commandment says you shall have no other gods before me. What, what does that term before me really mean? Hebrew scholars tell us that it can mean in competition with me. That's the way I handled it in the first point. But perhaps the, the, the fuller way to, to see the command is to see that God is saying, you must not have any other gods before my face. That's the way John Calvin took this command. In, in other words, God sees everything and there is no place that you can hide your false gods from him. Do not have the audacity to give divine place to lesser things as if God doesn't know about them. And, and John Calvin then goes on to liken the issue to the shameless woman who brings an adulterer before her husband's very eyes only for the purpose of annoying him. It's not just an issue of breaking the command. We're really breaking the underlying substance of a relationship with God. And we do it by simply inserting the word and into our relationship. Yes, Lord, I, I love you. I want to worship you. You're my God. I also love and worship and serve this other one. That's why Calvin's analogy of marriage is so fitting. Kevin DeYoung uses a similar example. What man would come home to his wife holding the hands of another woman? Hey, honey, I'm home. Got someone I want you to meet. She's very special to me like you're special to me. You know I love you very much, but I also love her. Let's be really clear, sweetie. I intend to give a lot of my time, a lot of my attention to you. But you need to know on the front end, there will be some times, some nights that I'm going to be with her. I wanted to introduce you because you really do have a lot in common. You both have excellent taste in men. You both just mean so much to me. I wanted you to meet. Now, after the, the wife hits her husband on the head with an iron skillet, what should she say? She should say, I, I, I need you to know something very clearly. If you want me, you cannot have her. If you want our relationship to continue, you better get rid of her now. Don't ever bring her before my face again. Would anyone consider that overly demanding? No. No, except for the skillet. I mean, she's really being exactly who she should be. 
You might say she understands the relationship better than her husband does. Covenant relationships inherently declare that love demands exclusivity. So why should the Lord your God, who brought you out of the bonds of slavery to sin and idols and Satan himself, the Lord who has wed himself to you by the blood of the eternal covenant through Christ, why should he expect anything less than what any reasonable spouse would hope? God's law is a reflection of his character. And so the Ten Commandments begin with this reminder of his grace. But the very first commandment says, this is a God who's jealous. Jealous? Not jealous the way a 16-year-old boy hates someone who looks at his girlfriend. That kind of jealousy, of course, has nothing invested at all. No, Yahweh is jealous Because his acts of salvation have already earned his right to your faithfulness. His right to this exclusivity. I just performed a wedding ceremony yesterday. The father brings his daughter down the aisle. The potential husband takes his place on one side of the dad. The bride takes her place on the other side. And before dad gets out of the way, we ask these questions. Will you take her as your wife? Will you live together as God has ordained? Will you love her and comfort her and honor and protect her in sickness and in health? And forsaking all others, will you be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? It is in the forsaking of all others that the wife can rightly say, ah, his heart really does belong to me. What do you love the most? What do you desire the most? What do you pursue the most? What do you think about the most? Is that the competing woman? Is that the potential and in your relationship with the Lord? Jesus knows that's the way the human heart works. Which is why he says in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke 16, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, in that case he says, money. Worship and serve God alone. What he means, what we break, and then finally what we fear. Now as we move through these commandments in the coming weeks, I want to acknowledge that for many of us, a study of the Ten Commandments leaves us with a dull tension that we don't quite know how to quantify. In fact, studying the Ten Commandments for some people feels a little bit dangerous because somewhere in your past you were taught that those commandments are in themselves a way of securing God's love. Or in some ways you were taught with with legalistic overtones. And so the questions that swirl in your head sound like this, is God displeased or is he pleased with me? 
Does he love me more if I'm obedient and less if I'm disobedient? And so for those who come from kind of a legalistic background, I suspect that you, you feel a low-level, dull murmur as you encounter God's law because you fear in your mind that to encounter the law is to run away from love and grace. Others of you come from an environment, a background where the Ten Commandments were never taught, and so you had slogans like this, God isn't interested in rules, He's interested in relationship. And that sounds for a moment so beautiful, and it makes sense. But I suspect the longer that you ignore God's law, the more you found yourself enslaved in sin. And though you thought it was, it was like a hyper, beautiful, powerful grace, it now seems somewhere deep down in conflict with your own conscience, which declares your guilt. That would be raised in a context of antinomianism, anti-law. But you know now more clearly that the sin and its consequences tells you, that you, I really can't ignore God's commands. For you, perhaps, there's a fear that, that every week we will come and, and Eric will wipe it all away by saying, well, well Jesus did it perfectly. Jesus o- obeyed the commands of God. And here's those two fears. You've got legalism and antinomianism. And both are similar in this one way. They both avoid Christ. They both completely run free of Christ, which is why Sinclair Ferguson can say that many antinomians are ex-legalists. So for some of you, there will be a temptation to come to every single commandment and say, well, I really shouldn't be legalistic about this. I think it was overstated this morning. The underlying presumption is that to dig down deeply into each commandment will result in legalism. Let me remind you, that the purpose of the Ten Commandments, the purpose of studying Exodus, is to meet the Lord, to learn about the God that we are called to love and serve. And so as we study the Ten Commandments on this side of the cross, of course we study them realizing that these are the, the fullest expression of God's heart And Christ is himself the embodiment of the full expression of the character of God. Because Jesus is that same God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God. John 1.18. No one's ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side. Jesus has made him known. So if the goal of the Ten Commandments is to meet God, to learn His character, then we can use these commands not only with joy, but with a kind of boldness because they do help us see Christ. 
you're married, you know that rules always govern a relationship. That's the reason we take vows on our wedding day. The Ten Commandments teach us the heart of the one we love. One pastor rightly said, if you listen to all the law of God, then you will feel naked and exposed and ashamed and helpless, and you will seek the mercy of God. That's why the Apostle Paul can say that through the law, when it is listened to, it is devastating. And though it is devastating, it is nevertheless spiritual and righteous and good. I'm talking about Romans 7. And its work is ultimately gracious, Romans 7, 7. And that work acts as a kind of schoolmaster who leads us to Christ, Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Friends, you don't have to fear legalism. Truth is, that's not really the danger of most of our hearts anyway. You just move with boldness. We move with confidence right into the law of God because in it, I learn the character of God revealed through Christ and I see more clearly the brightness and the beauties of the salvation which is accomplished fully by his obedience. False gods take you away from the true God. Christ takes you to the real God. Worship and serve God alone, and there you'll encounter Christ. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for your word. I give you thanks for opening your scriptures to us for the ministry and help of your Holy Spirit. Apply your word to the hearts of your people. I pray that you would comfort the afflicted and that you would afflict us who are too easily comfortable. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.